0: 6349 or proliftdoors.com/portland. On this episode of the podcast, we have Nick Smith who is kind of our resident timber guy. Uh, so Nick, why don't you just start out with like just a kind of 2-minute bio about who you are, who you represent, your your uh go ahead.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure.
2: Well, first of all, I, yeah, I just I want to thank you guys for having me on the podcast and, and for the conversation. I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I work on, on forestry issues, timber issues. You know, mainly my career has been spent in, in politics and public policy. I worked for you know ten years in the Oregon Legislature. Worked for I think six. Sometimes I lose count. Uh, <laughs> s- six or so um, state representatives. Five of them were were uh, House Republican leaders or majority leaders mm-hmm. when you know Republicans once had a majority in the state. You know worked uh, for everyone from uh, Dennis Richardson from the very beginning, who gave me my start in Oregon politics, to people like Wayne Scott, who was the House Majority Leader, uh, Bruce Hanna, who we. had. Helped make the the, the co-leader, uh, you know Kevin Cameron, Andy Olson. Then you know I had a cup of coffee with Mike McLean before I I left uh, politics, and you know really you know I, I ran House campaigns. I was the executive director for the the House Republicans pack and had a fair amount of success, but you know 2012 we didn't. And uh, you know you get to a point in your in your career and. You kind of feel like you're, you're ready to, to get out of that partisan bubble a little bit, maybe work on issues that you, you feel strongly about. And, you know, certainly working in the Oregon legislature, you know, given the, the history, the heritage and, and the importance of, you know, the timber industry, uh, in the state, started talking to folks and, you know, try to figure out sort of what, what that path was for me. One thing that I, I found was that at the time, There really wasn't anybody who was out there advocating on modern media platforms, whether it's social media and others, to to talk about the need for for better forest management, uh, both for those conservation benefits such as wildfire and all of that but also the economic aspects as well, in that we have a lot of communities in Western Oregon, Eastern Oregon, that timber is really their only resource. These lands are so locked up in federal ownership that, you know, number one can't be taxed, number two can't be diversified for, you know, other economic uses, and so all these communities have is timber, and and these communities have a lot of timber. And so kind of working through that, there was a need for someone to be out there with you know just just some new messages and su- some some new ways to get those messages out there. And so in 2013, I started a, an organization called Healthy Forests, Healthy Communities, which is a, a grassroots coalition that lends a voice to a lot of the folks who are both in leadership positions but also at the very you know grassroots level to to give them tree an roots outlet. level maybe. I'm sorry.
1: Should it be called tree roots level, given your Expertise, (laughs) yeah.
2: Well, there there you go, and and you know to to help tell the stories. Our forests need to be managed. They need they can be managed for multiple benefits, not just timber. You know, if we're not managing these forests for these multiple benefits and and multiple uses, then we we see what happens. We we've seen the impacts in our communities. The social economic impacts, the joblessness, the helplessness, you know, the the number of kids on free and reduced price lunches, just the, the chronic poverty that, you know, is just forgotten.
0: So kind of what you're referring to is uh, Southern and Southern Oregon and kind of the coastal area. There's a lot, very high unemployment, very high drug use, very high everything. And that all kind of started during the Clinton administration with the spotted owl endangerment uh, so you want to just come and get a little bit of history on that and how that affected like the the Southern Oregon CD four area? Uh,
2: yeah, absolutely. So the Spotted Owl is looked at as the the genesis for the decline, frankly, of our Western Oregon you know timber communities. And I mean the politics back then really played out the way, unfortunately, politics tends to play out today in that. You know, you had the Northern Spotted Owl, uh, that gets tied up in litigation. You have a judicial system who dramatically changes the, the trajectory of forest management in these communities. That reaches a level where, you know, that gets the politicians involved and politicians, you know, tend to say what people want to hear but when it, when it you know rubber hits the road policies never quite live up to what is needed and and you know going back to the to the early 90s you have the Clinton administration who, frankly, is responsible for uh, so much of the mess that we're dealing with today, both environmentally and, and
1: economically. Do we, uh, do we all remember Ronald Reagan's nine most dangerous words in the English language? I'm from the government <laughs> and I'm here to help. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And, and in this
2: case, it was called the Northwest Forest Plan. You know, really right up the road here, you had the World Forestry Center, and that mm-hmm. was where they had the big timber summit, where Bill Clinton and, and Al Gore bring the industry together, they bring in the enviros, we're all going to sing kumbaya and we're all going to figure this out in a room and it never works out that way so this stuff is complicated and it requires really tough decisions so they came up with this northwest forest plan and you know really it, it was a, it was a grand effort to try and kind of balance a lot of these competing interests What a lot of people don't understand or don't know is that, you know, one of the pillars of the Northwest Forest Plan is that it was, it's stated in the Northwest Forest Plan that it, we will never forget the human dimension of these issues, you know, the social Mm. and economic aspects. And the way the plan was written is that it would have promised, I think, like a billion board feet, I'm going to get this number wrong, but, you know, something like a billion board feet of of timber a year so that you know we're setting aside this sp- book forest for the spotted owl but we're providing a sustainable and predict- predictable supply of timber to support our rural communities but it Wait. didn't play out that way
1: and now, I just, just for me, for somebody who doesn't really understand the industry, a billion board feet strikes me as a number that, while if that's great, they can preserve the the habitat for the spotted owl. That's still enough to maintain an industry and provide jobs and help the economy and everything, right? Uh,
2: absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's a significant amount of timber, okay? And uh, especially today, you know, with the state of our of our forest products infrastructure. But, I mean, going back, it it just never worked out that way. And the anti-forestry activists, as as I like to call them, basically played played this process perfectly in that they obstructed, they they litigated, and, and, you know, today we have 9 million acres of critical habitat, and I'm using quotation marks, for the northern spotted owl, a lot of which the owl doesn't use, you know, a lot of land where the spotted owl has never been found. Forests with certain characteristics that do not make for spotted owl habitat. And essentially, you know, these, these lands are set aside. You know, certainly we've seen research that catastrophic wildfire, especially mm-hmm. these days, is, is the greatest threat to spotted owl habitat than, than certainly logging. And does is also the barred owl, which has really came into these, these uh, you know, spotted owl areas and basically chased the owl away.
0: So, how many board feet do we currently harvest? Do you have an idea? Oh. Don't know. Okay, <laughs> I was just say significantly less than a billion, though.
2: Uh, well, collectively, I mean, you, you know, what I—it's kind of what I call the wood basket. Our timber industry sources their timber from a number of sources. Federal lands is, is one piece. There are large, sort of private industrial timberlands, and then you know there are small woodlands. The federal government owns sixty-one percent of the state's forested land base but only contributes about 15% of mm. the industry's wood. The industry constantly relies on these industrial lands and these small woodland owners really to keep these mills running and their
0: employees working. So we're still building houses here in Portland. There's construction going on all over the place. Yeah. Where does that wood come from if not locally from Oregon? Well, it's a
2: really good question. We're Oregon is blessed with some of the most abundant in renewable resources in the world, you know, I've I've heard Larsen today talk and say that you know we're the Saudi Arabia of, of wood, which you know is kind of interesting. Uh, I think there's some truth to that, but frankly, we we import you know majority of our wood from Canada and from places that don't share our our science, our technology, and our forest practices.
0: So, from an environmental standpoint, is it better to harvest? Wood locally or to harvest it in British Columbia and drive it to Portland. (laughs) Well, I think you could, I think you could figure out the, the, the the carbon
2: footprint of that. But, you know, personally for me, and I actually went through this process when I, when I bought my house is that I like the, the thought of locally sourced wood that is harvested by the best professionals under the best science and technology and under the best forest practices in the world. I mean, we have people, we have the know-how to do it and to meet this country's insatiable demand for wood. And so, yeah, that's a cool concept that just like we we want to know where our beer is sourced, we want to know where our food is sourced. I mean, the why not our wood? was the first episode
1: of Portlandia was they they, they go in and they're going to get brunch or something like that. And they say, all right, you know, I'm going to get the fried chicken and waffles or something like that and I said no where did the chicken come from like well it came from this farm right up the road like "Well, what was its name or something they go to the farm (laughs) farm. and it's you know it 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 obviously is taken to a hilarious end in the show because that's satire but we here in Oregon we love the idea of things being homegrown we love the idea of things being locally sourced we were just talking about just before we got on mic how happy I am to be drinking an Oregon beer right now and these are all very true things yet here we are in one of the most the Saudi Arabia of wood, if if Lars Larsen is to be accurate, yet we are looking to other countries, other states, but other countries even to build our own shelters.
0: So as we're recording this on September 16th, uh, you can look out the window right now and it looks like it's snowing because of how smoky the, the air is. I think just yesterday it, the air quality was downgraded from hazardous to very unhealthy. Very dangerous. Unhealth- very dangerous. So, yes, I don't like that. It's bad. <laughs> we are in, in down air- from apocalyptic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. The AQI was the air quality index was literally off the charts the last week or so here in Portland. So that's kind of like this is a, a really timely thing to be talking about. And good some, job us for doing this. Podcast. <laughs> right. So we already kind of spoke a little bit about forests. The sixty-one percent of the forest is owned by the federal government. One of the Tweets that kind of got Nick and I both spun up recently is a leftist trying to blame the wildfires on the Republicans for walking out in the last the state Republicans walking out in the last session. Uh, so the bill they're referring to, there were several bills on A uh, bill post, I think, posted on Facebook at one point that these had actually all died in committee before. The denial denial of quorum. I haven't and heard it wouldn't
1: have taken place until twenty twenty. Right. Even anyway. if they had
0: passed, it wouldn't have been it, taken place until twenty twenty one. And yet it hasn't stopped the Democrats from pushing the the line that this is all Republicans' fault, despite the fact that they have had a trifecta for over a decade, except for one one case where the uh the state house was tied. Um, I was there. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> so from a political standpoint, I guess what can be done to prevent this kind of thing from happening? Is it a federal problem? Is it a state problem? Is it a combination of the two? Is it more logging? Is it controlled burning? Like what, what is the answer? You are, you are God yeah. for a day. How do we prevent this yeah. from happening in the future?
2: Well, it's all of those things you just said. <laughs> but, I'll, but I'll, but I'll, but I'll, I'll add to that, you know, it's just, it's a sorry state of affair in our politics and, All due respect to my friends on on our side, we're just as guilty as as anybody. But, you know, in anything, on any given issue, somebody else is to blame. And uh, certainly I can blame plenty of people. I I guess I'll just talk about sort of how, how I see it and sort of what we need to be focusing on now. As I mentioned, you know, most of the forested land base, in this state, is federally owned, and it is land that's largely not being managed. And, you know, one of the root causes, I, I, and just one of the root causes, and there are several, and I'm happy to, to go through them, but our land management system, you know, goes back to the turn of the, of the last century. Theodore Roosevelt, Gifford Pinchot, and the creation of the National Forest System. One of the policies is, is that they, they adopted back at the turn of the century is that they were going to suppress every fire that, that ignites. Mm-hmm. And I want to be clear that I support wildfire suppression. <laughs> Certainly. I think fires should be put out. But what happens is, is, you know, fire is a natural thing. Fire is a natural, natural component of these, is of these ecosystems. If you're constantly suppressing fire and you're not taking other actions to, to manage these lands, fire is not able to serve that natural role in terms of managing the vegetation on the ground. So we suppress every fire and then we get to the past 30, 35 years where we're still suppressing fire, but we're not really doing anything to manage the incredible growth and productivity that these forests have. And the forest's Accumulate, accumulate tree densities are, I just read this morning, are 80 to 150% their historic averages. And like other living organisms, trees need sunlight. They need nutrients. When they're in their, their forests and they're not getting that sunlight nutrients, you have a lot of competition and that just adds to the, the fuel accumulation
0: quick editor's note the actual number is between 80% and 600% denser than 150 years ago okay back to the conversation
1: i we've read a lot about forest mismanagement yeah. at the state level at the federal level yeah. and i guess can i just ask in your view is forest mismanagement is is good forest management Clearing out enough of the forest to make room for people, you know, people, trees to grow at their regulated rate or like, or what, what has taken place that so many at at the federal or state level have fallen down on the job?
2: Yeah. In my opinion, forest management means managing a landscape for multiple objectives. You know, in my mind, federal forest lands should be managed for timber, should be managed for forest health should be managed for proactive wildfire mitigation, but it's not serving any of those purposes in that you have a mishmash of federal laws and policies one thing that a lot of people don't understand is that when we talk about forest management and things like timber harvest, only a small portion of the federal land base can be actively managed because you have you have wildernesses, uh, wilderness areas, you have right. areas for the spotted owl and other wildlife. So basically, all we're arguing about is managing basically a sliver of this land base.
0: Hmm. That was my you know, next question: Is we've got millions of acres of forests. How do we? I mean, it, it's got to cost money to go out and manage these things, even the parts that we can. I think that if you, through laws and regulations and working with the timber industry, you can get the timber industry to do that management for you. It doesn't, you don't have to pay someone to go out and manage the forests yeah. because the timber industry is already out there. Yeah. The timber industry does not want to see these kind of fires because it ruins their product. So In why, their own timberlands. In their own timberlands. Right. Exactly. Right. So if you allow more logging allow, allow more timber harvest, everybody's goals are aligned. Yeah. The timber industry doesn't want to see fires because it hurts their bottom line. the nobody wants to see the forest burn down. Nobody wants this kind of smoke in Portland. I don't know this is my simplistic view on the world yeah I mean, well I mean tell let, me why let, I'm let's, wrong.
2: let let's <laughs> let's talk about this. There are a lot of ideologies involved and all of that. So here's the way it's supposed to work you have a, an agency like the forest service who for a number of reasons want their lands managed for for different things not just for timber but wildlife habitat enhancement stream restoration and what and other things of that nature so the way this process is supposed to work is that the forest service will essentially partner with the forest products industry and the forest service will Develop these projects and they go through the whole process, all of the, that mishmash of environmental laws and regulations. You know, they do their endangered species consultations. They do their national environmental policy act paperwork and all of that stuff. And the deal is, is that they will put out a timber sale or a stewardship project and they will basically put them out to bid. I mean, depending on the, the mechanism. And the deal is, is that you can go in and harvest this timber. To make your lumber and other wood products. But as part of this deal, we'd like to see some sort of low value fuels reduction work. We'd like some culvert work or some road building or something like that. And it all gets packaged up. These companies bid. They invest. The money goes in. The timber sale is sold. The loggers go in. They do their work. Everyone goes home happy. The Forest service achieved its objective. The, the industry got its lumber. So how does,
0: how does it, how does it fall apart? Is it just yeah. that there's too much involved? It's too expensive. The slumber yeah. sales are too, too complicated.
2: Yeah. So, okay. So, you know, big, big <laughs> element, big element in this is that there are people out there who, who don't want anybody to, or at least they don't want the timber industry to make any kind of prop profit from, from public lands management. And, sure. and so. You know, a lot of it is ideological. We should let nature take its course. We shouldn't let these profiteers
0: take this timber out. Well, to your point from earlier, forest fires are natural. This, like, what's happening now, I mean, it's to an nth degree, but like...
2: Yeah, timber timber harvests basically mimic the natural disturbances that we've seen over millennia, you know? Yeah. And so, more often than not, what happens is they're able to... These anti-forestry folks are able to exploit NEPA, National Environmental Policy Act. If the Forest Service didn't dot its I's and cross its T's, it didn't do something right in its paperwork, they take the Forest Service to court and say, the Forest Service violated NEPA, so this Mm. timber sale is illegal. More often than not, it'll get tied up in litigation, some cases for years, oftentimes a judge will say, "Okay, well, yeah, I mean this this project makes sense, but they didn't dot, they they didn't cross those T's in in their paperwork. So I'm sending this back to the Forest Service to redo their paperwork. And then you know another year goes by, <laughs> right? And the the whole the whole process and and so it, it's mostly about obstruction and delay, just basically to just delay these projects until they burn up. And I've got a good example of that.
1: So can I ask a little bit? Your answer brought up an interesting thought in my mind. I So I'm – this is September of 2020. I've lived in Oregon for the last five years. Mm. I and a lot of my friends here in the Portland area are either transplants from other part of the country or individuals uh, who have grown up here and maybe went to school in Eugene or Corvallis but then returned. And their knowledge of Oregon is limited to, in large part, the the Portland part of Oregon. We – work at bars we brew beer we work at intel and nike and what have you and there's a whole other state out there that is we do road trips to bend we do road trips to cannon beach you know whatever but is is unknown to us and some of the legislation or some of the i'm sorry litigation that you had just talked about doesn't necessarily affect our lives until we get something like what we see outside right now, where it's, it's very smoky. The air quality index, as has been mentioned, is still, it's just above or just below 200 as we speak. It's not supposed to get better till tomorrow. What does, what are some of the effects of the lack of ability to take advantage of the state's kind of main natural resource? On the rest of the state of Oregon, specifically kind of the southwest corner of the state that's so invested in timber and had, had such, a, such a dependency on that industry for a long time. Yeah,
2: we have these communities, you know, as I said, their only resource is, is timber. They're surrounded by lands that can't be taxed, that, that can't be diversified. And so th- their biggest priority is their own livelihoods and their own economic mm-hmm. well-being. Mm-hmm. Timber is a is, is a big part, but it's only one part of forest management. Forest management is mimicking those natural disturbances that helps keep these dynamic systems functioning and healthy. It's providing access, so you know, either motorized or, or non-motorized, so that you could drive up on forest service roads, which are logging roads, frankly, and you know, able to get to your, you know, remote campground. Trail work, campgrounds. Traditionally, a lot of this stuff is is was paid for by timber dollars. We can have a whole podcast just on wildlife and their needs and the effect of public lands management on where we're seeing wildlife now.
0: You know what's bad for wildlife? Freaking forest fires. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Right, it's bad for the spotted owl. It's,
2: it's bad, bad, for, a, bad owl. for a lot. And so, you know, there's there's something in it for everybody. Everybody's got skin in the game. It's easy in Portland just to kind of forget about the other Oregon because it's hundreds of miles away these are people that we don't know they're not really our neighbors but we can be managing forests for for multiple benefits we're just not doing that and it's it's a missed opportunity for for so many reasons
0: so one of the things that i've seen put out online of as a solution that's kind of done other places but is not really done here is controlled burning is that a good solution to what we're talking about, going out and starting files deliberately and watching them to kind of mimic these natural things? Or uh, maybe talk yeah, to that for a second. Yeah, and
2: that's another case where people try to frame it as, as the sort of either-or propositions. I mean, when I talk about forest management, I'm really talking about the use of tools, forest management tools. Logging is a forest management tool thinning vegetation, you know, removing the brush, that's a forest management tool. Prescribed fire is a forest management tool, and prescribed fire is used quite a lot by the timber industry. They, they do it a lot on their own lands because they're trying to control their, their vegetation. It's a way to control, like, logging slash and, and, and things of that nature. I think the thing where, where things get lost is the notion that all we need to do is, A, let fires burn. Let wildfires burn, which I, I think in most circumstances is just insane uh, these days. Hmm. And that we could just simply pr- prescribe burn our way out of the problem. We can't prescribe burn our way out of the problem on federal lands because these lands are so overstocked. So much heavy fuel mm. that, uh, and not to mention, you know, it, it's not the it's not the timber industry that oftentimes it's, it's not objecting to prescribed burning. It, it's really the, the the folks who live near these prescribed burns. You know, they <laughs> just don't like the smoke, and and you know, it's something that they they object to. But it, it takes all of these tools: it, it, thinning, logging, prescribed burns. It's all part of the solution.
1: Something that I've seen serve as a uh, kind of a fulcrum point for. Twitter debate, at least, is a lot of people on the left, you know, in conjunction with the Republican walkout from earlier this year and last year, people say, oh, the Republicans are opposed to dealing on any kind of legislation that tackles climate change. And James and I, and I think probably a good chunk, if not all of the Republican Party anymore, does believe that climate change is real. Mankind does contribute to it. This is no longer... Up for debate. This is now we're we're just talking about the extent to which it happens, but I I don't believe that people on uh, you know my side of the aisle are actively trying to obstruct climate change. But I also don't believe that Gavin Newsom or Kate Brown, when they come out and they say, "Oh, look at this! Climate change caused this horrible, horrible fire." When just in this past Sunday's Oregonian, they said between seventy and ninety percent of the fires that are happening right now were. A gender reveal party, a kid with a firecracker, whatever. What do you see as the role of climate change in this, you know, in what we're currently experiencing versus the role of humans just being stupid and careless, for lack of a better term?
0: This is another thing that bugs me about climate change. And yes, to your point, climate change is absolutely real and absolutely something that we as a party and as a country and as a state need to be focusing on more so than we currently are. However, Climate change is measured in single degrees over centuries. When you have, like, this year was hotter than last year, that's not climate change. That We have a different word for that. That word is weather. Right. This, the, the, yeah. <laughs> climate change <laughs> is not something you feel. Right. It's something you measure. And if you have, this year was five degrees hotter than last year, it is a localized event. has nothing to do with climate change. Over centuries, climate change makes a much bigger impact, but a thing that like th- this year was hotter than 10 years ago is is not that's not climate change that's a localized weather event yeah so i want to
2: tackle this in two ways first you know i believe climate change is real i do believe climate change is a factor in these wildfires absolutely mm. without a doubt we're seeing that in longer fire seasons we're seeing that with drought it's, it's, uh, I'll, I'll let the, the client, you know, other people talk about the climate science, but I, I definitely think it's a factor. And, you know, I mean, my message recently has been, none of this stuff is simple. It's, it's never an either or situation. The fact of the matter is, is there are a number of variables that contribute to the growth and intensity of wildfire. That is weather climate, including mm-hmm. climate, wind, as we saw on Labor Day, and then, you know, of course, drought, topography, but also fuel, and mm-hmm. I, I would add access. And, and so what my, what my message is, is that it's kind of like the causes, I mean, I think it's all of those things, but, you know, shouldn't we be focusing on the things that we can control? And my argument is that there are two things that we can control. We can control fuel, and we can control access, you know, this is another big debate because you know, I mean, there are a lot of people on the left who who argue that fuel doesn't doesn't matter in wildfires, <laughs> and I just I don't understand that. It's like anybody who camps and you know, uh, you know, has a campfire, you know, knows that you need fuel to have a campfire. We're never going to stop lightning from igniting wildfires. Most of the times, nine nine out of ten, we're not going to stop arsonists, mm-hmm. but we can control the fuels, and when that ignition happens, we have a much better chance when we're managing the vegetation, when we're managing vegetation around power lines and, and on lo- along roadsides. And, you know, just, of course, just, just proactively managing our forests in general. So the other layer to this is, is that, you know, my argument is, is why does it really have to be a climate change versus forest management debate? And I think a lot mm. of that just obviously is that sort of the you know, it's an election season. People are staking out positions and it's just nauseating. It's counterproductive. And, and, you know, I, I think as I see it in the role of the, the, the forest products industry is that forest management wood products are, are a climate solution. If, if you're concerned about climate change, doesn't it make sense to, to take some actions to have a healthier and resilient landscape that can survive these, these disturbances? Doesn't it make sense to reduce we're trying to reduce the intensity. Of these stand replacing wildfires that are taking out watersheds that are taking out wildlife habitat. Shouldn't we be using more wood? And of course, I'm. You know, yeah. I'm. I'm. I'm a little biased here in that I, <laughs> I love wood and, and I talk about it and support it. But if you look at the carbon footprint, wood has a much lighter carbon footprint than other built building materials. Um, it's also renewable. It's renewable, and you know when you you know trees are are carbon sequestering machines. Yep. And uh, but there are whole dynamics about how trees sequester carbon, how they store carbon over long term. But you know, when you harvest a tree and you create a wood product, that carbon is locked in the wood product for essentially life. Mm -hmm. So it's like what if to be cornered into these positions when there's so many solutions and and some proactive things that we we could be doing.
0: And to my point from earlier, we're not using less wood. We're just shipping it in from other places, which is a higher carbon footprint than if we lo- we harvested it locally. Right. Um, it's the same thing with natural gas, like natural gas is actively replacing coal, but there are some anti-fossil fuels folks who are anti-natural gas. And what's what ends up happening is instead of replacing fe- coal, which is a much dirtier product, we're now just hanging on to the coal because it's it's still there. It just yeah, doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I
2: mean, there there are folks, you know, like the old environmental motto, you know, think locally, act globally. And, you know, oftentimes, uh, yeah, it just seems like people don't see the big picture in mm-hmm. that we've talked about the benefits of locally sourced wood. And um, people care about where their beer comes from. They, they care about where their food comes from. They should care about where their wood comes from, because if it's not coming from Oregon's forests or the Pacific Northwest. It's coming from somewhere else. It's coming from somewhere else. In a lot of cases coming from brazil you know i mean you know Hmm. check out the whole relationship between china and russia and their brand of forestry i mean effect. you know Mm. basically you're seeing the chinese go into russia and basically annihilate these landscapes i mean does that does that make sense you know people don't you know i I think a lot of it is shifting you know nimbyism and really kind of not seeing the the big picture in my opinion
0: Shifting gears a little bit, I've got a question about clear-cutting. So been reading, again, reading a lot online about this. And it sounds like, again, from the internet, so grain of salt, uh, that... That's your first th- mistake, James. I know, right? <laughs> um, harvesting timber in a way that thins the forest without clear-cutting is really not economically viable. And so clear-cutting is really kind of the only way to do it. But a lot of environmentalists, a lot of those on the left, are very... Anti clear cutting. I don't really understand why, other than it just looks gross from the highway. Yeah. But if you're replanting, what what's really the difference between clear cutting and thinning? If yeah. you, you replant everything and it, it grows back eventually.
2: Yeah. Well, oftentimes these anti forestry groups will will frame our our intentions that you know we're we're just wanting to clear cut these landscapes into in, into dust and. Clear cutting, people have very strong opinions. You s- primarily see clear cutting on like private, you know, industrial timberlands. And, and it really depends on like the, the forest, all of these other factors. You know, you, you see a lot of, of clear cutting on the west side of Oregon because that is basically what needs to be done for Douglas fir trees to grow. Douglas fir trees, which is probably the most valuable tree species in the entire world, you know, needs abundant sunlight to grow. On industrial timberlands you know clearcut you know clear cutting is the accepted and, and um, is the accepted practice and, it, and it's done. Clear cutting generally doesn't happen on federal lands and um, it, it always depends but our intention in, in terms of managing the forest isn't to do industrial style industrial scale forestry. If we're managing lands on a large landscape, if we're managing forests on a landscape level, and we're not doing all of this arbitrary stuff like on a map, like so you can't cut here, you can't cut here, you can only comb up so much here, you don't have to do the industrial style stuff on on federal lands to achieve all of those objectives. And that's uh, just something that's often missed.
1: So. Is there any kind of push from? I mean, Greg Walden is one of the most powerful members of Congress that there are. And we, you know, he's still going to be in office for another couple months. And then after that, we're going to have Cliff Benz, who presumably would have some similar ends in mind. Is there any kind of push to allow more? logging on federal lands or to allow, you know, some of the timber industry any more access to lands they previously could have jumped on.
0: Greg, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the podcast. Yeah, shameless Please plug, yeah. Call me, uh
1: come <laughs> on the podcast.
0: Sorry, go ahead. Congressman
2: Walden could talk a lot about this stuff because the the, the short answer to your question is yes. There are many pieces of legislation just today there was a hearing in the Senate on a bipartisan bill, Steve Daines of Montana and Diane Feinstein of California, hmm. a forest management bill, a pretty good one that, you know, would increase opportunities for, for active forest management. You know, all this stuff just gets so lost in, in political rhetoric. You know, really what the, what the thrust is, is that or the, the, the problem is, is that it takes, you know, take the forest service. It takes the Forest Service too long and it costs too much money for them to implement the work that they want to do uh, on these landscapes. And a lot of that has to do with meeting you know, those federal environmental, mostly regulations, Endangered Species Act, but primarily NEPA. And NEPA was the was my point yeah. earlier, is that basically a lot of the obstruction in federal forest management involves around NEPA hooks. You know, it's like, well, where can we get them? You know, where, in a given project, it's like, where can we really nail them in, on NEPA? And so, you know, a lot of the solutions that are in Congress and I, I think are politically palatable is... Where do we streamline NEPA where it makes sense? Where can we streamline the process so that it doesn't take the Forest Service four years and a million dollars to treat a stand, you know, Mm -hmm. especially areas that are at high risk of wildfire. And there are a lot of those areas in Oregon, areas where we could do those wildlife habitat enhancements, you know, where we could be protecting watersheds and, and, uh, you know, this is all done through things like cata- what are called categorical exclusions, which are a part of NEPA, where, you know, if you meet these criteria, this area is at, at high risk. You know, we need to do these treatments to protect some wildlife habitat rather than spending two years writing hundreds of pages of, of environmental analysis. Maybe you do forty pages. You check some boxes. It all makes sense, and the Forest Service can can go ahead and implement these treatments. And so that's a bulk, a lot of a lot of reforms that we've been seeing. Congressman Walden obviously has been uh, amazing in terms of his support for these measures. They just they get stopped in the Senate because that's where good forest bills go to die. <laughs>
0: Well, we are just about out of time. So, Nick, one thing we like to do for all of our guests when we're finishing up the episode is ask you a question. Who is your favorite Republican? Well,
2: um, this is probably the most frequent answer, but, I mean, it's Ronald Reagan. You know, I'm in my mid-40s, and I I came of age, you know, really during— the President Reagan's first term, you know, I remember, you know, vaguely when he was elected. I remember, you know, the when he was just nearly assassinated, and uh, of course, you know, my most vivid memory in politics is is his re-election and uh, just a triumphant victory for both him, the party, and just the conservative
1: movement. Morning in America. You
2: know, it's like you hate to be too nostalgic about stuff. But, you know, I mean, here was a guy who, you know, really captured the hopes and dreams of a, of a country, was able to uh, kind of just be a father figure, you know, and to really kind of express conservative principles and, and positions in a way that people could could support and rally around. And, um, you know, it just hasn't been the same
0: since he left office. So here, <laughs> here. Yeah.
1: Ronald Ra- Reagan. Would have stopped the forest fires. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Nick, thank you again so much for coming and taking the time to come on the podcast. I know you're on Lars Larson, uh, who has about 10 or 20x our, our reach. Uh, so thanks for slumming it with the uh, the Rational slumming Republican it podcast. <laughs> it's been
2: been great to be here, guys.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, with that, I think we're going to end it. Listeners, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Rational Republican podcast. Your hosts are James Ball and Nick Perlosky. The show today is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors of Portland, serving the greater Portland metro area for all your garage door installation and repair needs. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us at james at jamesaball.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find our episodes at jamesaball.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts.